and uh, we sing with that assurance. Praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Jake and Emily, for your help and your leadership with the music ministry today. Going to uh, get away a little bit from my normal routine, and I'm going to have a PowerPoint uh, that will accompany my message. And uh, there is uh, a, a reason, or there's a rhyme to my reason, or a reason to my rhyme, uh, as uh, some would say. I have a rhyme and reason for, uh, for that. I don't typically uh, preach on Sunday mornings uh, with a PowerPoint, uh, but I, I believe it will be helpful. Uh, I don't know. I just, in my mind, I get a little, I get a little maybe a little weird in my mind, but I get used to certain routines, and I have a certain method when I preach, and I feel like there's a little bit more liberty on a Sunday morning to not be tied to a screen and to my computer, so I hesitate to use uh, the screen on uh, Sunday mornings, but I do want to bring to our, our, our notice today 10 reasons, 10 reasons why we believe that he lives, and I thought it would be helpful uh, as we go through those to have those on the screen. Uh, but I do uh, want to uh, have the liberty to, to, to preach and to work through the outline, uh, and, and I don't want to be too tied to the computer, so I apologize if I, uh, I'm back and forth a little bit this morning. But we're, we're in John chapter 20, and we see in this great passage that Christ arose. Obviously, four gospel accounts of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to focus primarily on John chapter 20, because we have been working our way through the book of John, and uh, this, is, this has been a, a wonderful series. I've thoroughly enjoyed preaching through the gospel of John. Uh, it's kind of been a joy of, and, and, and a privilege uh, of, and a longing of my heart uh, to preach through uh, this great gospel, and I hope that it has been an encouragement and a blessing to you as much as it has been to me. But as we begin looking at John 20, we have worked several weeks looking at the trial and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we come to John 20 in verse number 1, and now we are on the first day of the week. We are on Sunday. Christ would have died and been put in the tomb in the afternoon of that Friday. We often recognize or think of as Good Friday, understanding the Jewish clock, the Jewish day, he would have died most likely around 3 o'clock on that Friday afternoon. That would be considered the first day. Then, of course, he was in the grave on Saturday. We know Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared the body for burial with great sacrifice as Joseph of Arimathea gave his own tomb, his own grave to our Savior Jesus Christ. Again, Christ died a bodily physical death. He wasn't in soul sleep. He wasn't just unconscious. He died. His human body died. He, yes, of course, as we know from Scripture, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So God did not die. Christ, of course, went, remained with the, the Father in the perfection of the Trinity and the unity of the Trinity. We know that there was that divine estrangement for that period of time, while the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ as he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And now here we are in the morning of the third day. And one of the reasons we 
hold church on the first day of the week, on Sunday, is because every Sunday is a reminder and a reflection upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, in a sense, is Resurrection Day. So we come to John 20 in verse number 1, and as we read just a few moments ago, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Christ had promised that he would die and that he would rise again from the dead. He had promised this. He had made these statements very clear. We could go to Matthew 16 and verse 21 where Jesus, from that time forth, began Jesus to show unto his disciples. And Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16 and verse 21, that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He made that very clear in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 22. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. So as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, making it very clear and plain that he would go to the cross, that he would die, and then he would rise again on the third day, Peter, in his zeal, thinking he is doing something good and he's going to protect Jesus and prevent this awful tragedy from happening, Peter then says, not so. He rebuked Jesus. And, of course, Jesus would then have to rebuke Peter. And we know that Peter had foot-in-mouth disease, as uh, many times we also can relate to Peter by putting our foot in our mouth. And obviously Peter would have to go through some hard knocks. There would have to be some rough sandpaper, some Brillo pad that would have to kind of shave off some of those rough edges. And Peter would have to learn and grow in his faith and develop some uh, Christ-likeness and some self-control. And obviously God did that as Peter would deny Christ three times, and then he would go out and he would uh, weep bitterly, repenting of his sins, and then Christ will, will restore him. And John, uh, we'll look at that in chapter 22, hopefully in a, in a few weeks, and what a beautiful picture of restoration. And here, uh, Peter is restored and then used greatly of God, but at this point, as Jesus is speaking very clearly of his death, burial, and resurrection, even Peter, even his disciples, and Peter being the chief spokesman, is saying, no, that can't happen. But in Matthew, excuse me, in Mark 8 and verse 31, we also see another time where Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. In Mark 9, in verse 31, he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. And then in Luke 9, in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. I know some of those are parallel accounts, but still it's very clear what Jesus has told the disciples. 
Luke 9 and verse 44, Let these sayings sink down into your, your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying. Luke 9 and verse 45. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. And then we could go to John chapter 2, and we can see also there where the disciples were unaware, not understanding, not accepting Christ's own prophecy regarding how the temple would be taken down and then rebuilt in three days. Jesus makes reference, prophetic reference, and they thought that the Jewish leaders and those who were there hearing him, they thought that he was talking about the actual physical temple. And Jesus is referring to the temple of his body, referring to the fact that he would die on the cross and rise again on the third day. But the disciples struggled in understanding that. They did not fully accept it. As we know from Matthew 16, verse 22, as we just read, and then Luke 9, verses 44 and 45, and these other examples in the Scripture. And again, it's a reminder of how our faith can be in the right place, but it can have some weakness to it. It can need some development. It can need some growth. And I would hope to think that many of us, after being saved for many years, can testify of our growth in our Christian walk, in our maturity, in our understanding of the things of God, in our spiritual walk. I would venture to say that all of us, looking back, as we have seen the development of our Christian life, I would certainly hope and pray that none of us would, after having been saved for many years, would say we're still in the baby stage, needing just the milk of the word. And yes, the milk of the word is important, but what did Paul tell the believers? That they needed to be growing with the meat of the word and not just the milk. God reminds us from his word that there is to be a walking, a progression, a growth a development, a maturity in our Christian life, in our faith, in our maturity as a believer. And the illustration is very clear and obvious because all of us, whether we've been a child or we have our own children or grandchildren, we all understand the growth process. And I'm thankful for all the years now as we've taken our children to the, the pediatrician for whom we are very thankful for. She's been a great pediatrician for our kids and we get those little papers and it talks about percentiles 50th or 70th or 90th and we're thankful that we've seen that progression we've seen that development physically with our children and uh, now we're in that stage where we have two going off to college one's already been there a couple years and a second one now going to college and I'm, I'm feeling all of those experiences now as a dad trying to figure out emotionally and how I'm going to handle all this with, with uh, two kids out of the home. And some of you are saying, ah, I've had all my kids out of the home, and it's wonderful being empty nesters. I, I don't know maybe where you're at in your stage of life, but I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of struggling a little bit trying to figure out how I'm going to uh, handle this with, with two out of the home. But we are thankful for growth and development. We don't want our kids to remain in a baby state's. We don't want them to grow in a toddler or to remain in a toddler state. We want them to grow. Now, there are certain stages of life as they grow and develop that we wish we could keep them there, maybe. But in, 
in reality, we know that they must be growing and developing and maturing. And we know that one of the problems in our culture today is this extended adolescence where we have young people who are not maturing, who aren't taking on adult responsibilities. And there is a crisis among our men today where we have 20 and 30-year-old men who are not taking adult responsibilities. And some of them are in such a crisis that they are committing acts of crime and acts of depravity and despair and the suicide rate, and 100,000 drug overdoses, from what I understand, was 2021 or 2022, 100,000 deaths from drug overdoses in one year, the highest, I believe, ever on record. Uh, Symptoms of a lack of satisfaction, of growth, of development, of maturity, whatever the case may be, but we know ultimately it is because our world needs the Lord They need this truth regarding Jesus Christ. And the disciples, they were lacking, yes, in their faith. They did not fully understand, but before we're too critical of them, we have to remember how many times that we have been where they are at or where they were. And we have not developed and grown. We've not grasped a spiritual truth. We've not received something from the Lord like we should have. And we've been there as a child or even as an adult, sometimes as a husband, We don't receive what our wife says, and then we get in trouble because we went, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure, but we had not processed at all what she had said. And then a couple days or a couple hours later, she reminds us, and then she gives us that evil eye. You said, "Uh uh-huh, I just told you, and we have that sinking feeling because we didn't receive, we didn't process And in a sense, that's what the disciples are going through. They have not received, they've not fully understood and grasped what Jesus has taught them. Their faith would have to go through a maturing and growing stage. Eventually, they would understand. John 2 makes mention of the fact that later, after the resurrection, they would understand, they would grasp. Luke 24 and verse 8 alludes to that. And then John 12 Just a few pages back in our Bibles, in John 12 and verse 16, these things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Eventually, they would grow in this area. They would understand, they would receive, they would process, their faith would develop, and they would mature in this area. We see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most powerful testimony to the legitimacy of our faith. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we of all men would be most miserable. Then our gathering here today would be a waste of time. It would be frivolous. We might as well go to some concert or be sitting on a boat fishing or out on the golf course golfing or sitting on our couch eating potato chips and watching TV. If Christ be not risen, then what value is our gathering today? What is the point of church? Why are we preaching from the scripture? Our faith would be in vain. This truth, this reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most powerful testimony to the legitimacy of our faith. We also see that Christ's resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. We cannot forget to declare the resurrection when we give the gospel. 
It is an essential part of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must include the resurrection. We know that once the disciples saw Christ, their faith solidified. Instead of cowering in fear, they became bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. They were God's chosen leaders in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we know from the accounts of Scripture that Christ never appeared post-resurrection to an unsaved person. At least it's not recorded that Christ ever appeared post-resurrection to an unsaved person, except for in the case of Paul, when he was converted on the road to Damascus. So the resurrection, Christ's appearance for those 40 days, his appearing in his glorified body, with those scars visible, as we'll look at later, uh, Lord willing, maybe even next week, with Thomas, who is known as Doubting Thomas, those scars visible in his glorified body, he appeared primarily and it appears exclusively to only Christians, not to unsaved people, but to true, genuine believers. Because there was that verification, that strengthening of the believer's faith, that maturing of their faith, that encouragement, and that promise, and that fulfillment of prophecy, and the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. And the commissioning of the disciples, of believers, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And the only record of Jesus appearing post-resurrection to an unsaved person is to Paul at his conversion there on the road to Damascus. So John is giving undeniable and verifiable proof of Jesus' physical and bodily resurrection to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of all who will, who will receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. This is verifiable and undeniable proof of the truth of biblical Christianity, of the essence of our faith, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, of all who will receive him. So we see in this passage, we see a searching for comfort, a searching for comfort. Who does Jesus appear to? Mary Magdalene. As we just read there in verse number one, Jesus had saved her. We looked at in a previous message a little bit of the biography of Mary Magdalene. I won't go back and rehearse all of that, but we know that Jesus had saved her, delivering her from demons. We know from Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. We know that Mary was extremely grateful for what Jesus had done for her. We know that this resulted in a devotion, a loyalty to Christ. Because she never got over her salvation, having been delivered from demons, from a life of sin and whatever contributed to that demonic activity in her life, when she got saved, she got gloriously saved. There was no doubt of the change in her life. And she was not ashamed of the testimony of her Lord. She declared it. She was loyal to Christ. She was there at the cross, and then she is down there at the sepulcher. And she receives a prominent role in the resurrection accounts. She is the first one to see the resurrected Lord. She is a grateful believer, a devoted believer. Yes, at this point, she is also a sorrowful believer. We know that she came 
Verse number one, while it was yet dark, she seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And then she runneth, verse number two. She ran, having seen the stone rolled away, and she went and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, that's John. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. We know that there were some tears, there was sorrow, because later down in verse number 7, verse number 8, as she came back to the sepulcher, we know that there was this sorrow that kind of overwhelmed her down in verse number 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. So in this sorrow, there was some confusion. And again, we can relate to this. She had been there with the other women standing at the cross, gazing upon Jesus. We looked at that passage earlier in John 19, verse 25, Matthew 27, and verse 56. She had probably even been with a group of women who followed Jesus' body to the tomb when Joseph and Nicodemus placed his body in the, the grave, Luke 23. She was in sorrow. A sorrow that had created in her mind, in her heart, some confusion. Do we not find ourselves sometimes in those places of sorrow, of difficulty in understanding all that God is doing, confused? We want God to put His will and His purpose on a big billboard in neon lights shining and saying, this is why, and this is the reason, and this is what I'm doing. And God doesn't deliver His message, His truth to us in that way, does He? He commands us to claim the promises, the principles, and obey the commands of His Word. And it's hard. Sometimes it seems that God is silent. I love the song that Mac Lynch sings, When God is silent and we don't know. There are times like in Psalm 42, where we read in the Scriptures and we can relate to the psalmist. And I appreciate a friend of mine, a preacher friend of mine, who says that when... He struggles. He's thankful for 150 friends, each of them a psalm that he can go to. And in those psalms, we find a friend in Jesus. And we have a psalmist who relates, and we're thankful for a Savior who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But in Psalm 42, in verse number 5, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. The psalmist repeats that in Psalm 42 in verse number 11. There are times where sorrow brings confusion. It brings bewilderment. And we know that Job experienced that, didn't he? He lost his cattle, he lost his crops, he lost his wealth, he lost his children. Then he had four friends who came and only one of them had a, a decent counsel. Some really appropriate and biblical counsel, only one of those four. The other three were were pretty much off target with their counsel, but one of them had some pretty good counsel. And that's that's all Job had. Even his wife said, curse God and die. And then we get to Job 38, 39, and 40, and in a respectful way, we see Job asking why. Why, Lord? All those chapters of silence 
For 37 chapters, God remained silent to Job. And then for three chapters, God said, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is what I have done. This is who I am. And for three chapters there, we read nothing but God revealing and declaring who he is and what he has done and what he can do and what he will do. And we have to trust. Mary was struggling. There was sorrow. It had created confusion. Her sorrow, though, was out of love and respect for her Savior. So even in her sorrow, there was still a love for God, for her Savior. There was a respect for him, coming to the sepulchre early, helping take care of the body. There was a sacrifice. There was a loyalty. There was a devotion. And that's what God wants of us in the times of our sorrow and our confusion and our trials and our tribulations and our difficulty. He wants us to remain loyal and steadfast in our faith and to love him and remain devoted. Not turn to the world. Not turn to all the coping mechanisms and the cheap entertainment that the world offers and many times just lust and further sin to try to drown out the bad feelings and the stress. No, we have a God who we can turn to who loves us, a Savior who died for us, who cares for us, who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And Mary, as much as she was struggling, as hard as this was, as much confusion as she had in her life, she was still loyal and she was still devoted. She still loved the Lord. She went to the tomb early while it was dark outside. In Luke 24, there's a description of the group of women who came early in the morning to do the same. It's very possible that Mary Magdalene was part of that group. Either way, she came to the tomb. She saw the stone was rolled away from the entrance. She ran to tell Peter and John, assuming that Christ's body had been stolen. So that is the story that she told them. In verse number 2, as we just read a few moments ago, she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, John, we know it was John, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Mary Magdalene, grateful, Devoted, sorrowful, confused, overwhelmed. We then, we then see the two disciples, Peter and John. And we begin to see this transition from consternation to conviction. We see a search for comfort that now is replaced with a conviction that overcomes the consternation. The fear, the worry, the sorrow, the confusion is overcome as Peter and John enter into the tomb and they see the napkin and as we just read there in verse number 7, the linen clothes wrapped together in a place by itself. 
And they believed, it says in verse 8. There's conviction now concerning this truth, the reality, this understanding. It's the light bulb's coming on, so to speak. And that's a wonderful thing as a parent, as a teacher, as a pastor, sometimes as a parent in the case or a grandparent. And there's something, I know it's this education and uh, having been in education for many years and teaching, and I know this is the case in the ministry as well, in preaching and teaching the Word of God. It's such a joy to see the, the light bulb come on, to see the decision or the exercise of that person's faith, a truth that they then lived out. It's a joy to us as our children mature and grow and develop. Isn't it a joy as a parent to see when our children make a good decision on their own without mom and dad looking over their shoulder and showing them and telling them? The joy of our children walking in truth. And in a sense, there's this development of their faith with Peter and John. They believe, verse number 8, conviction replaces consternation. But with Mary Magdalene, it takes just a little bit longer. So we come to verse number 11. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. Apparently she had gone back. She told Peter and John. Now she came back to the sepulcher. And in verse 11, she's standing there. She's weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down. Now she goes in and she looks into the sepulcher, verse 12, and she sees two angels. Two angels in the tomb. Angels in whites. The one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, woman. Again, this is a respectful term. This is a woman. This is ma'am. This is a term of respect. Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. So this whole time she's thinking that the body had been stolen. And that was one of the rumors that would go around, is that the disciples came and they stole the body of Jesus away. That was what she was apparently thinking. Verse 14, and when she had thus said, she turned herself back, and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Now, we don't want to be overly critical of Mary, because imagine all that she was going through, and the sorrow, and the tears. And you know how it is when you have cried your eyes out, how hard it is to focus through the tears, how hard it is, things are blurry, Kelly's had eye surgery. Some of you have had eye surgery, and you know what it's like to have to deal with some of that, or if you've ever had your eyes dilated. Here, her eyes are full of tears. She has been in sorrow, no doubt weeping, as the scriptures record, for some time that morning. So she looks up, and she doesn't recognize that it is Jesus. Does Jesus then scold her? Does he rebuke her? Does he sternly deal with her? No, he tenderly, compassionately, lovingly helps her through her sorrow in bringing her from confusion and consternation to conviction and grows her faith. As we read in verse 15, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Now, Jesus knew. He's the Son of God. He's the God-man, now in his glorified body, post-resurrection. He knew who she was seeking. He knew why she was weeping. What was Jesus doing? He's compassionately, tenderly, 
leading her to a conclusion that he knew that she needed to come to. As Jesus would often use questions to lead his disciples, to lead his followers, to cause a person to think, to consider, to help them think through it on their own so then they can develop that decision, develop that mindset, grow in that particular area, understand and receive like they should. And I would, re, I would do this, I still, I, I'm not the best at it, but I, I still, to this day, I try, when I'm dealing with people and, and counseling, I try to ask questions. There are times where we have to make statements. Jesus would even do that at times, where he would make statements and rebuke or command. But many times we have to ask questions, especially with our children as they get older. We have to get down on their level. Sometimes it's a little kid, we have to just sit down with them. We have to get down eye to eye. and Sometimes even with our adult children. And we just have to get where we ask questions and lead them to think through and to understand what the conclusion is that we're trying to get them to evaluate or conclusion that we want them to come to. And Jesus is growing her faith. He's tenderly bringing her to this point where she recognizes him. And grasp this truth that he is the Savior, her Savior, who has risen again. And it occurs in verse 15. She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. She thought he was the caretaker of the garden, the gardener. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. Verse 16, the light bulb in a sense comes on. She turneth herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Her response indicates her submission. She has now come to this place where she realizes it is the risen Christ that she is speaking to. As the light bulb comes on, she responds with submission, with devotion, with loyalty, with faith. And then we read here in verse 17, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father, and your Father, and to my God, and your God. Why did Jesus say in verse 17, Touch me not? Because apparently, upon her realization that this was Jesus, as she cried out, Rabboni, Master, Teacher, apparently she fell down and she grabbed hold of Jesus' leg. That's what many commentators believe. Or she reached out in some way to hug. It, it, it's, a, it's saying, as Jesus responds to her, do not cling to me. Literally, when he says, touch me not, he is saying, do not cling to me. She has apparently reached out in some way, either down on her Knees grabbing his leg or reaching over to his arm. Somehow she is grabbing hold of him. She doesn't want him to go away again. And Jesus is again helping her in her faith as he so tenderly has to do with us. Because we want to hold on in sight and not trust in faith 
Yet we have the promises, the principles, and the commands of the word of God that we can cling to. And Jesus said, don't cling to me. I have further responsibilities in this time that he is going to be on the earth post-resurrection in his glorified body. He's going to spend 40 days and he is saying, there is more for me to do. Go tell your brothers. Who is he referring to? Her brothers in Christ, the brethren. This is the first time in scripture that we actually see believers referred to as brethren. The disciples referred to as brethren. It's not wrong for us to call our fellow believers brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ himself referred to the disciples as brethren. They had been referred to as friends and as servants, and now as brothers. He's saying, Mary, you have a responsibility to go and tell your brethren, tell the other believers. He says, there are things that I am going to communicate before I ascend to my father. He is going to appear to the disciples He is going to remind them of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He has promised about the Comforter will come. The Holy Spirit will come, will guide you into all truth. And he is going to communicate that. He is implying that there is a message still that he has to deliver. Go and tell them that I have risen and that there is a message that I have for them before I ascend to the Father. And we know that from there, there will be the 120 that will meet in the upper room and We know later in this passage there will be the meeting with the disciples. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 there was the 500. And there were all of those who were witnesses to Christ's resurrection. But here Jesus is helping Mary. And he's helping the disciples. And he's preparing them for the message and the reminder that he will be sending the Holy Spirit. And that they have a commission from God to go and to share the gospel. To take the gospel. To all the world. And we have representatives, missionaries with us today who are part of that fulfillment of taking the gospel to all the world. To a group of islands north of Australia called the Solomon Islands that many of us have probably never heard of. I can relate to some or to one island, Guadalcanal, because of being a history buff and enjoying World War II and studying World War II. And a friend of ours who was in Missionary Aviation Fellowship But they are fulfilling the Great Commission just as we have been called, like them, to share the gospel in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria. And they have been called to go even further into the uttermost parts of the world. And we have missionaries that we are supporting. There is still more that Jesus has to declare, a message that he wants to give, and a reminder of the Holy Spirit coming. And he's saying, Mary, I know you want to cling to me. I know you want to hold on to me. But right now, you have a a job to do. You have a message. I have a message, excuse me, he's saying. I have a message to declare. Go and tell the brethren that I have risen. And we will meet again. And this message will be delivered. So as we come to the end of this message today, I I want to give us, quickly, ten reasons to believe that Christ rose from the dead. As we conclude this message this morning and next week we come back and we look at the accounts as Jesus will then reveal himself to the disciples as they are gathered and doubting Thomas and that accounts. Let's look at these ten reasons quickly today. Ten reasons to believe that Christ rose from the dead. One, a public execution. 
The religious leaders demanded his death. Pilate commanded it. Two criminals hung next to him to die. Roman soldiers confirmed it with the spear and the blood and the water that came out of his side. A high official secured the gravesite. Pilate ordered the seal of Rome to be put on the tomb. Soldiers stood guard under penalty of death. The entrance to the tomb was covered by a huge stone. Thirdly, in spite of guards, the grave was found empty. Some of Christ's followers went to the tomb on the Sunday morning after his crucifixion. They found the stone rolled away from the entrance and Jesus' body was gone. Two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, they went in, they found the tomb empty with only Jesus' burial wrappings lying neatly in place. The guards, they went to Jerusalem. They told the Jewish officials that they had fainted at the sight of the angelic being that appeared, that rolled the stone away. They said when they woke up, the tomb was empty. And then the Jewish leaders paid the guards to lie and say the body was stolen by Jesus' disciples. And then they even promised to defend the guards. They were willing to pay for a lie. Doesn't that sound like our politicians today? Paying money for lies? Many claimed, many people claimed to have seen Jesus alive. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said the resurrected Christ had been seen by Peter, the twelve apostles, more than 500 people, James, and also himself. Number five, his apostles were dramatically changed. The apostles went through a dramatic life change after Christ's resurrection. They faced some of the religious leaders who had crucified Jesus. They faced them with incredible determination. They were willing to sacrifice everything for their Savior. Despite imprisonment, despite threatening, they were even more determined to preach the gospel, choosing rather to obey God than to obey man in Acts chapter 5. Even after they were beaten, they did not quit preaching and teaching Jesus as Christ. Acts 5 and verse 42. Would people do that for a lie, for a fable, for a myth, for a fairy tale? Witnesses were willing to die for their claims. There have been numerous martyrs for Christ throughout church history. Few people will die for what they know to be a lie. Their deaths were not by suicide in blind loyalty to a false religious leader, like in some sort of cult. So their deaths were not by suicide in blind loyalty to a false religious leader or to some false idea or to some cultic leader. They were murdered while refusing to recant the claim that Jesus had died for the sins of mankind and rose bodily from the dead in victory over sin and death. Number seven, Jewish believers changed their day of worship. Jewish followers of Christ began worshiping with Gentiles on a new day of the week, Sunday. We'll look at that some more, Lord willing, next week. Doing so, they signified a new relationship with God and the inability of anyone to keep the law perfectly from one's salvation. The new way was based on the merits of Jesus Christ and not on the futile attempt to keep the law. Number eight, although it was unexpected, it was clearly predicted. The disciples were convinced the Messiah would deliver by political power and the physical establishment of his early kingdom first. Maybe they thought he was using symbolic language, but clearly he spoke of his coming death, burial, and resurrection. The Old Testament prophecies were clear. Number nine, it was a fitting climax to a miraculous life. The miracles Jesus performed throughout his earthly life were real and verifiable. They were done often very publicly. Is there any doubt that one who lived his life doing miraculous deeds would supernaturally rise from the dead? 
And then finally, it fits the experience of those who trust him. Millions of people have trusted Christ over the years and give testimony to the new life they have found in him. Their changed life, our changed life as a believer, is testimony to the resurrection power at work in human hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for rising from the dead, putting to death, Lord, the sin and the grave, having victory over those that death has lost its sting, the grave does not have the victory, but our victory is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins, and that he rose again, and that our faith is not in vain. Thank you, Lord, for your great salvation. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, Lord, may today be the day of their salvation. Lord, as a believer, may we once again be renewed. And Lord, that we might live by the resurrection power that, Lord, you have declared and that you promise as we obey you and are faithful to your word. Lord, do your work in our hearts, even as we conclude in this, with this song. In Jesus' name we pray.